I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Welcome to The Connection. Almost 60 years ago, in 1964, President Johnson declared a war on poverty during his State of the Union address. Many Americans live on the outskirts of hope, some because of their poverty and some because of their color, and all too many because of both. Our task is to help replace their despair with opportunity. And this administration today, here and now, declares unconditional war on poverty in America. Today, tens of millions of Americans live in poverty, and the poorest tend to live in the rural South, in the tobacco and cotton belts in southern Texas and in Appalachia. Our guests, acclaimed sociologists and leading poverty researchers, Catherine Eden and Timothy Nelson, explore why these regions are so disadvantaged and how this legacy of poverty has torn communities apart. Many are struggling with addiction, unemployment, violence, corruption, and isolation, a loss of community and connection. Their new book is The Injustice of Place. We'll talk about how these regions have been exploited and local efforts to bring people together to solve problems. Catherine Eden is a professor of sociology and public affairs at Princeton University, director of the Center for Research on Child and Family Well-Being. She's co-author of this book, The Injustice of Place, and uh, wrote almost 10 years ago an, an acclaimed book titled Two, uh, a, a, a book called Two Dollars a Day, Living on Virtually Nothing in America. And Catherine Eden, nice to have you back with us. Thank you, Marty. Also with us, Timothy Nelson. He's a sociologist, director of undergraduate studies at Princeton University and one of the authors of this book, The Injustice of Place. His previous research has been on low-income fathers, doing the best I can, the title of his book. And Timothy Nelson, nice to have you with us as well. Thank you. Catherine, let me begin with you. How much of a person's place or their zip code determines their income, their education, their employment, their health, their overall well-being in America? So it's really striking, Marty. Uh, We've learned recently um, that uh, where you live, where you grow up, can be as consequential for you as your genes, uh, your behaviors, the quality of health care in your community, uh, community both at the neighborhood level Uh, And at the larger level, a city, a county, is tremendously consequential for your later life outcomes. Has it always been this way, or is this a more exacerbated problem? You know, I don't think we know the answer to that question because we don't have the data going back that we do right now. Our nation's big data infrastructure is really ramped up in ways that are allowing us to ask unprecedented questions. Um, But I think uh, the new frontier is going back into time. Uh, to try to see whether we can reconstruct some of the data that allow us to tell uh, the story of the power of place today. You know, Timothy, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people would think, oh, no, it, it's it's urban America. That's where the poverty is. We're talking in Philadelphia, which is the largest poor city in the country. But nonetheless, where you found this deep poverty were in, you know, these sort of legacy slavery states of the deep south of southern Texas, of Appalachia. Yeah, as we say in the book that we, uh, most of our lives have been urban sociologists who've yeah. studied Philadelphia and Camden and places like that. When we put um, 
this index of deep disadvantage together, which is what the book is based on, and it's really at the county level and also the 500 largest cities, and we put it all on a, a map to look at what the patterning was, and lo and behold, it, were th it was the very places that you mentioned, right. which led us um, to not only send researchers into these areas and do some deep ethnographic kind of work and, uh, and interview study, but also to drive. Um, some of the book is just kind of a travelogue <laughs> of us driving around and, and really getting a look at what these places yeah. are like. I mean, it is interesting that we're talking largely, Ka Catherine, about the South. Why is that? I mean, that, that's a large question. Yeah, so um, the index of deep disadvantage combines measures of poverty with measures of help, health and measures of mobility. We use uh, machine learning uh, to put those together and create these rankings. And uh, the reason these places are in the South is that in many ways, uh, the 14 Southern states and the commodities they've produced have been the foundation of wealth in America. So we're talking coal, tobacco, um, cotton, and the first uh, irrigated vegetable farms, mm -hmm. spinach, onions, all of the staples that end up on American tables uh, were first produced in these sort of single commodity economies in the South. And it is in many ways those economies and the social relations, the extremely exploitative social relations that grew up around these industries that create the legacy these places are struggling with today. Well, and what you describe in this book, Timothy, is 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 exploitation. These, you know, we think of big tobacco, big cotton coming into these areas where, of course, that's where the the resources are, but um, just extracting um, not just the resources, but also destroying some of these communities. Yeah, it, a lot of these places were founded essentially on, as Kathy said, these single. Commodities tied to international and uh, and local uh, markets. We actually use a phrase in the book, internal colonies, yeah. to kind of capture what this exploitative relation was like. And people might say, well, capitalism alone is kind of exploitative. But these places are so deeply and intensively exploitative and extracted. I think they're, they're sort of qualitatively different from what happened in, in other areas. And we look particularly at, at the upper Midwest as a place which kind of has some a lot of the opposite dynamics, although obviously very rural. Yeah, and I, I do want to get to that. But let me go back. Something that you both have said, and this is also a big part of the book, you talk about disadvantage versus poverty. Explain the difference and, and why it's important to think differently, perhaps even about poverty. Well, when we were embedding uh, researchers in these communities and they were living and participating in the communities, we'd have these weekly meetings, and someone said, would say, did you know Clay County, Kentucky, was um, the salt mining capital of the region by 1820? And then we'd hear, did you know Marion County was, was at the height of tobacco production for its entire region? And another researcher would say, did you know that it's in LaFleur County, Mississippi, where uh, cotton really gained its greatest ascendancy after the Civil War, um, and so on. And so we, we started thinking, how can all of these places we chose at random from a map be hmm. the capital, world capital of something? And this is what sent us to the history books. And as we were learning about the extraction and the exploitation in these places, uh, we felt we had no choice but to move 
from a poverty uh, frame to a disadvantage frame because disadvantage implies uh, it's a moral term. It implies that people have been held back unfairly. Mm. And this this being held back unfairly was really what we were seeing in the histories of these places. I'm sure some people think and say, and I've heard some people say this, that the reason people are poor is because of their own fault. They make bad choices and that they pay the consequences, Timothy, for these bad choices. You're pushing back on that in this book. You don't choose where you're born, or in most cases, where you grow up. So I think that is the dominant nar- uh, American narrative about poverty. Mm-hmm. And in terms of choice, um, you know, I've seen some comments to the book about, well, if these places are so bad, why don't people just move away from them? Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, they are very depopulated. People have moved back, and oftentimes have had to come back because they didn't find things much better in the the major urban areas they've tried they've tried out. Because these are communities, right? I mean, mm-hmm. as poor as they might be and as disadvantaged as they, as they might be, this is where people grew up. Exactly. And their family is there. People need networks, especially when you're living in poverty, to survive. You can't just do it on your own. I mean, it is interesting to, to look at some of this history and, and this I, even the legacy, Catherine, of, of slavery and Jim Crow, because when you look at the South and a lot of these places— um, you go to sharecropping and subsistence farming and tenant farmers so that even if, if people are making money around you, so many of the workers were not. What's fascinating about these places is they were like uh, feudal economies, uh, a tiny cadre of haves, um, often heavily indebted to Eastern banks. N- nobody, is, nobody is not a part of this story, mm-hmm. right, in banks in, in New York and, and London. Um, and, and then a vast population of highly exploited workers. And not only were they exploited for their labor, they were denied suffrage. This persisted until the 60s and 70s through boat, vote buying. It, consists, it persists today. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, this, the story of, um, of um, really uh, the feudal s- structure that you see when you have haves, have-nots, and no one in the middle is very striking and, and really characterizes the U-shaped economies of these places even today. And you even describe some of these communities where on, on one side of town are mansions and, and people living very well. The other side of the town, the roads aren't paved. You know, the houses don't have, you know, electricity. Or, or, or yeah, latrines. No, or yeah, even yeah. latrines. Yeah. So I think this is why driving to as many of these places as we could, we visited... 175 of the of the 200 most disadvantaged counties on our road trip um, is because the revelation that these places were not uniformly poor was richly on display. Mm. Um, so you you'd see antebellum mansions or you know ranches uh, in South Texas or you know the the houses on the hill in the former mining communities of Clay County. And then you would see um, the shacks. Yeah. And oftentimes they were cheek to jowl with one another uh, and, and remain so today. So these places still are places of great affluence and great poverty. In fact, they're some of the most unequal places. Mm. Uh, there is an unequal or even more unequal is uh, Chicago, Los Angeles, or New York. 
Well, and, and we're almost some of the break here, Tim. But but I mean, that's sort of that's America, isn't it? This this deep divide between rich and poor. And it doesn't have to be, I think. <laughs> I mean, and that's what in the end of the book we really targeting these very disadvantaged places. We have some very specific policy proposals for how we can address those things in uh, you know using the big data infrastructure that we have now and and all the research that we've done. So, I mean, I'm sure some people listening to us now think, oh, my God, you know, this is such a depressing conversation. And I should say that that, that we will get to that um, mm-hmm. after a, a very short break. And let me just make sure um, our listeners know who we are talking today on The Connection. Our guests are Catherine Eden and Timothy Nelson. They happen to be married to each other, I should say that. And they have co-authored along with um, a third guest, uh, I mean, a third uh, writer, uh, Luke Schaefer, a book called The Injustice of Place. And it's uh, uh, subtitled Uncovering the Legacy of Poverty in America. And uh, they both are professors at uh, Princeton University and have been doing this work having to do with uh, sociology and also poverty for a long, long time. We're going to take a very short break and then get back to our conversation. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss Cohen. Where are the poorest places in the country, in rural America, in Appalachia, in southern Texas, the cotton and tobacco belts of the Deep South? Today on the show, we're talking about the impact of extreme poverty on some of these rural communities, the legacy of exploitation, and why we should care. And again, our guests are Catherine Eden and Timothy Nelson, and their book is called The Injustice of Place. Let me play another clip, and this is Robert F. Kennedy touring eastern Kentucky in uh, February of 1968. And this was a month before he declared his run for the presidency. For two days, he toured to see if Johnson's quote-unquote war on poverty was helping people in Appalachia. Well, uh, people uh, are still having a very, very difficult time. Uh, There is hunger, considerable hunger in this part of the country. There's no uh, real hope for the future amongst uh, many of these people who uh, worked hard uh, in the coal mines. And now that the coal mines shut down, Uh, They have no place to go. There's no hope for the future. There's no industry moving in. The men are trained in government programs, and there's no jobs at the end of the training program because of the cutback, uh, because of the demands on our federal budget in Washington, the war in Vietnam. Even these training programs are being cut back, and so people are being cut off, and they have no place to turn. And so they're uh, desperate and and, uh, filled with despair. It seems to me that uh, this country is as wealthy as we are, this is an intolerable condition. It reflects on all of us. We can do things all over the rest of the world, but I think we should do something for our people here in, this, in our own country. Catherine, he uses the word despair several times. Have things improved since 1968? So they have. It's absolutely incontrovertible that more people have, uh, you know, public have toilets in their homes. Um, 
Uh, there's less crowding. Um, the, the health conditions have improved. Um, we, we can't deny that, that, that the, there has been progress. Um, but in these places, uh, the very places that gave the war on poverty its face, the very places where Johnson and Kennedy toured on their various poverty tours, these are the places where it didn't happen, ironically. Um, you know, the, the agenda, I think, maybe got diverted because of civil unrest, other things going on in the nation. Uh, but it is in these places that we need to launch a new war on poverty with with a relentless focus on the places still in the greatest need. Well, let's talk about Appalachia, Tim. Mm -hmm. um, and you describe this, and I don't think there's any argument here, the sickest part of the country is in Appalachia, the state of, of opioid use, of abuse, of deaths, really targeted, as we are learning, by Big Pharma, by the Sacklers and, and OxyContin. One of the people that you talk to um, in, in a region of Appalachia is, says there is nothing to do here but drugs. I mean, this is, these are communities that have been hollowed out. And we hear the, the currently, you know, the deaths of despair. The people are so despairing, they can't live. Yeah, so not only was this region targeted by Big Pharma for a number of reasons, but it was especially vulnerable because of the loss of, of what we call social infrastructure yeah. in the book, uh, following sociologist Eric Kleinenberg. Um, and so these are the local places of gathering, um, churches, bowling alleys, um, um, Community centers. Yeah. yeah. And so um, when people have this type of connection uh, to one another through these public gathering spaces, sometimes called third places and so on, it really is a protective thing for them. And when, when those things disappear, then um, it leaves people vulnerable to all, all types of, uh, of bad outcomes. Yeah. I mean, why, it seems like such a dumb question, but Catherine, but why, why are they so vulnerable? I mean, companies come and go, things change. Sometimes people can adapt. Sometimes it's just harder. Why is this, why does this seem so intractable? So the economies uh, of, of these internal colonies really persisted held on until the mid to late 60s. And in those years, these communities were ripe, ripe with, you know, movie theaters, bowling alleys, roller rinks. Um, there was, you know, the tradition of going to the Saturday matinee. Of course, there was racial segregation in all cases. And that's important to figure out. The, the, the company towns even provided uh, golf courses for their white miners. And uh, this all began to collapse at once. Um, but then as depopulation started really um, affecting these regions, all of these businesses began to close down. And so um, the very places where communities build the bonds that catch people where they fall mm -hmm. were dying. And we were able to show empirically, going back to big data, uh, that losing your social infrastructure had as strong of an impact on opioid deaths, as did most commonly, more commonly recognized factors like uh, the loss of employment. So uh, there's at least um, speculative evidence that this really matters, that creating places to build connections, uh, the, the theme of your show, right. is vital. And that's almost a recipe uh, for some yeah. of the solutions then that we propose in the end of the book. Well, I wanted to, when, Tim, when you toured these, these communities, did you see signs of, of community coming back, of connections coming back, 
of building community centers, of schools taking a more central role in people's lives? Well, unfortunately... Yes we, and no, probably. We, we did the tour, um, we started the tour right before the pandemic. So that obviously had a huge impact mm -hmm. on you know, these institutions and their ability to, to stay open and so on. So um, we haven't been back since the pandemic to a lot of them. So I, w I would hope right. that we could go back and find exactly, as you're saying, signs of, of new life in these places. And especially since with um, some of the federal programs, a lot of it is targeted toward rural areas. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've been in discussion with people in the administration about um, how to best target these particular areas and, and support social infrastructure. No, go ahead, Catherine. Well, I did want to point out that um, uh, uh, later on in the show, we'll hear from Dr. Boyd Chow, and she's a really important figure bringing a charter school to Greenwood, Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, but there are many like her, uh, people who grew up in the community, often people of color, who have gone on and been incredibly successful in their careers. But they've come home to their communities. Uh, and I think we see this especially in the Cotton Belt in South Texas, determined to give back. And so there's a whole new cadre of leaders who are uh, resuscitating historic community centers, um, you know, uh, determined to start um, uh, anti-violence programs. Violence is a huge problem in America's internal colonies. Uh, doing things uh, that really bring the expertise they've gained elsewhere back to their communities. So, so in some ways, I think these communities have reached such a low reached such a low ebb that it's created room uh, for innovators like Dr. Boyd Shaw to come in and do something really meaningful. And in our interviews, we were really stunned by by the amount of support uh, that these new leaders were getting from all swaths of the community. I mean, that's that's really good to know. You know, I was thinking, you know, it's hard to get away from the pandemic. But during the pandemic, we actually reduced child poverty. There was the expanded child tax credit, which is substantially, I'm not sure, Catherine, how much it reduced child poverty, but by really Unbelievable. a measurable amount. Um, Congress did not renew it, so it went away. But what is the lesson there? Yeah, so we really worked hard on on um, advocating for the expanded child tax credit, and that, along with the stimulus payments, uh, reduced poverty and hardship in America to a stunning degree. <laughs> we can solve this, and it's mm -hmm. especially important in American America's internal colonies to have these sort of federal programs that reward parenting. We need people to have kids. Our fertility rates are falling to a frightening degree, and we need them to be able to raise them well to support us as we age. So, so what we saw there was that a simple uh, solution could make huge inroads, and and uh, it has the advantage of avoiding corruption, mm. which we also which found was rife in these communities. And so, right. you can circumvent uh, the elite capture of federal dollars by paying families directly. But isn't that also a part of the, the problem of dealing with poverty in America is you start a program and then you stop it. You yes. fund it and then you mm -hmm. defund it. I mean, there's a, there's a, Tim, there's, there's a whole history here of, of that's, that's how we have approached poverty. That's true. And um, I wanted to amplify something Kathy said. 
I think it's easy, especially from sort of an urban center, to look at a rural county, for example, and think, although, you know, first of all, it's a very flat um, social structure, which, as Kathy already said, is not true. There's the haves and the, and the have-nots. Yeah. But also, that division colors everything in these communities. So the war on poverty, one great feature of it is it, it had this requirement for maximum feasible participation of the poor. Um, interestingly, the Clay County Community Action Program was actually defunded because it couldn't meet that requirement because the local elites were so entrenched and so determined not to change the, the social um, uh, hierarchy that uh, they actually lost their federal dollars. So, wow. so these kind of direct programs to families which bypass that whole um, sort of situation are really important. Let me just quickly uh, reintroduce you in uh, today on The Connection. We're talking with Timothy Nelson and Catherine Eden, who have co-authored along with H. Uh, Luke Schaefer a new book called The Injustice of Place, Uncovering the Legacy of Poverty in America. We will be talking about schools, but um, there's also a, a stream of racism and, and white supremacy in this book as well. And as you write, uh, when there was Brown versus the Board of Education and the integration of schools, a lot of these communities put together these academies, these private academies, largely to keep black students out. And you quote um, someone in 1966. His name is Simmons. What's his first name? Uh, Tut Patterson. Oh, Tut Patterson. Okay. So writing in um, The Citizen, um, he writes, parents want their children to be raised and educated free from the tensions of racial conflict in the classroom, free from the frustrating drag of mass mediocrity, and free from the blight of self-styled progressive educators whose avowed aim is to turn young Americans from the established inheritance of their fathers to alien theories of collectivism and anti-white racism. Now, I have heard that today you know, right. at school board meetings. And here, this is 1966. Yeah. So when Brown was passed, southern states were tremendously, especially in the cotton and tobacco belts, tremendously successful at resisting these orders. In fact, nothing happened for 10 or even 15 years in Little Rock, Arkansas. It went on even longer. And But when um, these white citizens' councils, which were founded uh, to re uh, resist integration, uh, began realizing, you know, the Voting Rights Act and the uh, was in the, all of this new legislation uh, was coming. They began to stand up these segregation academies. In fact, uh, in the magazine, The Citizen, offering step-by-step -step instructions, and thousands of these segregation academies, which were whites only, explicitly sprung up all across the South. As many as 750 kids, I think by 1970, white children had left the public schools and were enrolled in these all-white academies. 750,000. 750,000. 750, I was going to say, sorry. Okay. Yeah, 750,000. Uh, yes. One thing that shocked us in, our, in our, um, our road trip is that we saw many of these uh, places continuing to flourish. And in fact, in, in Arkansas with the Learns Act, Act um, Many students will now be attending segregation academies on the public dime. Wow. But as a someone that looks at history, Tim, I mean, if, if we don't know our history or we whitewash it or we ignore it or we, you know, brush it under the rug, we're never going to, we're not going to be a functioning democracy, but we're also not going to be able to solve these problems. Yeah, it's it's often painful. Um, I learned a lot doing the the historical research for this book. 
a lot of stuff that I wish I didn't know <laughs> about our, our country. Um, but especially in these places, the harshness with which the local establishment and elites kept uh, a lid on their subjugated population, and, and not just in the Cotton Belt, which is more well known, but South Texas had its own, you know, essentially Jim Crow um, uh, institutions there with the all-white primary, with uh, certain labor controls and, um, and you know, just violence used to keep people uh, in place. Um, and in Appalachia, uh, basically the miners had no freedom of choice in terms they were told to who, who to vote for, which often was a, a company selected person. Um, if they were fired, they would lose their home uh, because it was a company town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the threat of that really kept people in line uh, yeah. for a long time. I mean, that's a powerful legacy. Yes, it is. So um, you might think that, uh, you might ask yourself, why didn't people revolt? And what You have a chapter about yes. that. <laughs> uh, it, it turns out that revolt is in the DNA of these places. These were also places that were the literal cradle in each case of civil rights. Um, but the elites are very, very successful uh, in retribution. Uh, we can't disclaim the great strides that were made. Um, you know, Greenwood, Mississippi was where Freedom Summer was launched. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a tremendous civil rights activity in South Texas. And essentially, it, it got people the right to vote. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, these communities have continued to suffer because of the white retribution, the elite retribution that often follow these acts of resistance. You both have mentioned violence. And I mean, this is a, a, a serious problem, obviously, across the country. A lot of the focus is on cities, on Philadelphia, what happens in this city or Trenton or any of our, our listening area. But you say, take a look at rural violence. And, and Tim, I don't know if it's greater than urban violence or how different it is, but it's a really serious problem. Well, what we did was we looked at uh, the best kind of um, CDC data for this, for deaths due to interpersonal violence. And actually, LaFleur County, Mississippi, which is the the home of of Greenwood, which we were, is actually more violent um, than Chicago, right? Uh, Uh, It doesn't get near the coverage or attention. So we do a thing in the book where we chronicle in a short time period of about six months using the local newspaper all of the, the, the homicides right. in the area. And it's, it's really, really a problem. Well, and this is a, these are places where people know each other. And I assume a lot of interpersonal violence is about relationships. Well, you know, it's interesting. We um, got to know uh, one community leader in Greenwood, Lavorce Weathers, uh, who helped with Sean Peterson, another activist, uh, launch um, an anti-violence campaign in the summer that we were doing our field work there. And, and our researcher, Ryan Parsons, was there observing all of these events. There were barbecues, and, and they were giving out surveys. And uh, what's the biggest problem in the community? Overwhelming numbers of people in the black part of town said, said it was violence. And violence was making them hunker down in their homes. It was keeping them from forming social connections because they were literally too afraid to go to an event like uh, the famed Southern Christmas parades. So, um, but uh, we also found um, through going back again to big data that uh, what was sparking the violence was actually the lack of mobility in the place. Oh. And Lavoris Weathers... Were stuck there, you mean. Yes, Lavoris Weathers was the first person to put us onto this. He said, 
It's not interpersonal beefs. It's hunger. Literally. It's hunger. And we called this the hunger hypothesis. And again, going back to the very best data available, we are able to demonstrate uh, that the lack of mobility in a place sparks violence. Mm. Well, I'll tell you what, let's take another short break, and then we'll get back to our conversation here on The Connection here in uh, in uh, Philadelphia on WHYY. And again, talking with sociologists Catherine Eden and Timothy Nelson, who have co-authored uh, a new book called The Injustice of Place, Uncovering the Legacy of Poverty in America. And the book is about uh, parts of this country. They tend to be in the South, the Deep South, Southern Texas as well, also in Appalachia. And they also talk about a bit um, on Indian reservations as well. We're going to take a very short break and then we'll get back to our conversation. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is WHYY in Philadelphia. You're listening to The Connection. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen talking with Catherine Eden and Timothy Nelson about their book, The Injustice of Place, Uncovering the Legacy of Poverty in America. We were talking about violence right before the break, and, and you interviewed a, a woman named Ebony, and she describes, Catherine, all the people in her lives, in her life, who have been killed or dead. Yeah, uh, I remember going, she lives in a motel, um, as many poor folk do in, in Greenwood. And uh, we crowded into her room, and, and she took out this file and poured it out on the bed uh, and began just going through uh, you know, death certificates and obituaries, uh, newspaper reports, uh, pointing out person after person in her immediate circle uh, who had died. And then the scene ends... Uh, with the the um, of the newspaper report of the arrest and um, incarceration of her son, who is also accused, um, though he denies it, of of another one of these murders of someone the family had known. I mean, this is trauma. This is war in a lot of ways, Tim. We're talking about war zones for so many people. It was really striking, and not, and certainly something we did not expect to find as we left the city and went out. Yeah into the rural areas, but, but such a striking part of what people have to live with. And, and, and some are dealing with it. I mean, some, Catherine, are, are figuring out how to address the problem of, of violence. I mean, this is, a, this is a nationwide problem. Yeah. So um, what's interesting, kind of like the nothing to do but drugs chapter of the book, is that people are realizing that young people need hope, they need a sense of the future. Uh, in th this area of Mississippi, there are a couple of so-called freedom schools. Uh, in fact, Ryan Parson is writing a book about uh, one of these freedom schools that are really trying to uh, help young people realize uh, a larger future. So that there are small efforts. Um, I think the Florida Legacy Academy uh, middle school in town uh, that Tamala Boyd showed, Shaw founded is one of these uh, sort of mobility engines that are coming into the community and sort of shaking things up. Uh, one problem, of course, is that 
Uh, the economies of these places are very flat. So if you have a high school degree in Greenwood, your best job is going to be on the on the factory floor at Milwaukee Tool, uh, where you're you're not going to make very much money. Yeah. You're you know, because that's why Milwaukee Tool's not in Milwaukee, uh, is because it can pay people half the amount it pays Milwaukee workers in Greenwood. So they have, you know, once you give kids wings, they need places to soar. And the economies really have to shift. Um, it can't just be the nonprofits giving kids hope. Well, you've given me a perfect segue to introduce our third guest, and that's Catherine Eden and Timothy Nelson. And again, we are talking about their book, The Injustice of Place, and they did travel the country. They went to uh, Greenwood, Mississippi, and uh, one of the people that they met there is Dr. Tamala Boyd-Shaw. She grew up there, moved back to found a charter school, the LaFleur Legacy Academy, and she told Catherine and Tim that she wanted to give students a better education than the one that she got, and a chance for a better life. And Dr. Tamala Boyd-Shaw, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Good afternoon. I am happy to be here. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. You graduated from uh, the city's uh, all-black high school. This is, as I understand it, according to our guests, you were near the top of your class. As you look back, what kind of education did you get? Yeah, you're exactly right. I did graduate from Amanda Elsie High School, class of 92, as salutatorian, missed valedictorian by just a tenth of a point. Oh, dear. And that memory <laughs> still remains with me today. Yes, I can um, tell. Yeah, so, um, but yes, as I noted, went through the interview, I, I know I got the very best education that the school could offer at the time. Um, unfortunately, as I continued to matriculate through school, um, college, and through my master's program, and even my doctoral program, I learned that my education was lackluster at best. Yeah. Um, despite star student and all of the different awards that I received while in high school, once I got to college, I learned that I was only, as I phrase it, Greenwood smart, um, and I wasn't able to compete Um, in a way that was um, academically telling with my colleagues, with my friends, with my peers once I got to college. So I spent lots and lots and lots of time in the library studying, reading, and just trying to catch up so that I can keep up and even get ahead. And that is something that I vowed that I wanted to do for children in Greenwood and the surrounding areas so that they would have even better opportunities than I did. And I do want to get to all of that, but just to underscore your experience, uh, Dr. Shaw, was it that you had outdated books or you didn't have the, you know, chemistry sets or the kind of supplies that, let's say, the white schools in, in, in Greenwood had? Yes, this is um, how I, I would I would put it. You know, I didn't know. You, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Right. So I didn't know at that time that the materials with which we had access, um, you know, or, or how we were working with those were so outdated, except for one day I realized you may remember um, textbooks having where you write the student's name in it. And so went down. It's like, oh, so many people had this book before I did, oh, wow. 10, sometimes 15 years ago, um, whether they were in that particular school district or um, it came from another school district. So it was really telling, like I said, once I graduated high school, but the access to materials that I have seen in schools across the country in my adult life, I definitely didn't have then. And it's 
sad to say a lot of that still exists in our small town today in terms of access to the very best resources. I have a good friend who lives in Houston, Texas in the Woodlands area and her daughter is in middle school and her school has a swimming pool at the school (laughs) and those kinds of things. So, and she left Mississippi, she and her husband and moved um, for um, professional reasons, but also wanted to think about the opportunities that her child would have um, as a black student. And that is really telling as well. But from my own experience, it was just the lack of opportunity, the lack of access to resources. And here at LaFleur Legacy Academy, we are trying our best through philanthropic opportunities and other resources to make this narrative different for children of the same demographics. Let me just go quickly back to, to you, Catherine, because both you and Tim write about this sort of separate but equal um, uh, idea, um, but it was never equal. It was separate but unequal. Yeah, and when we look at the history um, of schooling before Brown, uh, it is, it's, I think many people will, will find it jaw-dropping. But after, after Brown as well, and, and as you said, um, continuing today, and and a really wonderful economist, Rucker Johnson from Berkeley, uh, has done really innovative research showing uh, that when black and white students uh, coexist in integrated classrooms uh, for a sustained amount of time, uh, you can literally see the black-white achievement gap fade. Hmm. So segregation is bad for a black kid's achievement. Um, they do better in integrated classrooms in part because white students always command better resources, as Dr. Boyd Schott was saying, um, not because white students are, you know, special in any way, but because they, they come packaged with resources given our society. But we also know that in those same classrooms, white students don't suffer at all. Hmm. So in some ways, the choices we have made, and as you know now, American schools are as segregated as they were in the 60s. Uh, mm-hmm. As we make choices uh, to resegregate um, in in all kinds of nefarious ways, private schools are a big part of this. Um, it is uh, it is to the detriment of our children. Dr. Shaw, let me go back to you, and even going back to this Lafleur Legacy Academy, uh, wanting to create a, an environment, a place where children can learn and be their best selves. Um, that's hard, isn't it? It absolutely is hard when we have scholars and we intentionally call them scholars so that we can attempt to change the mindset and their ultimate trajectory in life. But it is especially hard when scholars are here with us um, seven hours a day, sometimes eight. We have an extended school day and um, after school tutorials a couple of days of the week to try to continue impacting that achievement level. But it's, it's hard because when they go back into whether it's a home environment or a community environment that doesn't emphasize the things that we emphasize with our core values of excellence, empowerment, and enjoyment. It is particularly mm-hmm. hard. Um, and we're a middle school, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And anyone who does great research knows it takes at least three years to see change. 
Um, and with that three years that we have with scholars, we're trying our very best to do that both academically and socially. So not having access to different resources makes it particularly hard, but that is why we try to open up what we call learning excursions to all of our scholars in a way that they would be um, introduced to different opportunities that they otherwise would not have. And if I may, just like a quick example, sure. there is a... Yale program, uh, Young Emerging Leaders that the Chamber of Commerce here sponsors, um, and it's for high school students. And they, um, they being the chamber, um, are, are really intentional about making the program as diversified as possible. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't end up being totally diverse hmm. for the reason that you named. One is that um, the white children in the program come with parents, counselors, teachers who are immediately going to recommend them um, for the program. And unfortunately, the black kids is always, oh, we had to send it to the school three times or we haven't gotten any response. And it's just really heartbreaking to me. And I just want to go out there and say, look, there are so many kids who are eligible for this. Let's make it happen. Mm -hmm. So what we did, we asked if middle schoolers could be a part of it because I know I could feel it with all positions of black kids with scholars from my school, but there weren't the resources there. So we wrote a grant. I said, there has to be funding out here for this. And we want to now become a part of that program where we can start in middle school equipping scholars with the necessary exposure and opportunities to actually emerge as leaders in the community. So I'm just not that person that want to talk about it. I, I think it's so important that we have people. <laughs> I get it. I, I feel it. <laughs> no, I think that's great. You know, you said something and I scribbled it down. You talked about it for the, for your scholars empowerment, but you also used the word enjoyment. And yes. I thought that was really interesting. And, and this show is called The Connection. So we're looking for for relationships and collaboration. And I wonder how critical you think enjoyment is. That's to you, Dr. Shaw. Yeah. Oh my goodness, <laughs> you all can see my face right now. If kids don't enjoy going to school every day, they're not going to learn anything. I don't care how well taught it is. So it is the reason why we want that joy factor in our school day. And what we teach, preach and act is you've got to be entertaining to scholars. You've got to make sure that they are enjoying every day. One of the things that we do here at Legacy is at the end of each day, our teachers have these index cards where the last three minutes, the scholars exit ticket, what did you enjoy about school today? Uh -huh. And I asked my leadership team, we huddle for 10, 15 minutes, let's run through some of these cards, see what they enjoyed so we can continue doing those things and seeing if a scholar did not enjoy the day, we need to talk with that scholar, we need to figure out what's going on. They absolutely have to enjoy the day. We as adults, we wanna do what we enjoy. Kids need that as well. Well, I would love to get one of those tickets. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that would all help us all. I wanted to, and I'm looking at you, at you, Tim, and I'm also looking at the clock here, but we're in such a, a fight about schools and about curriculum and, you know, these, 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 what seem like sort of inane arguments when there are so many critical issues that we have to address in terms of our children and the future. Yeah, so s schools are just so vitally important to creating um, places of opportunity. But schools cannot by themselves overcome the deep structural disadvantages of, um, you know, that we've created in society between racial groups, 
between the haves and the have-nots, and as our book points out, between places yeah. uh, which have more resources and, and places which have really never had the resources that they've needed. Well, even thinking about Philadelphia, you know, how much per student versus the suburbs. I mean, that's not to blame the suburbs, but they, they invest a lot more money per student than a poor-ish city does. Yeah. You know, and one other thing I wanted to bring up is that uh, Greenwood um, is kind of plagued, in a way, by uh, the plethora of schools due to uh, the refusal of whites to to be in the same classrooms um, as blacks. And so uh, we see a huge contrast, though, in South Texas, uh, where whites fled. And so you didn't see this bifurcation of education in the way you do in in much of the Deep South and the Tobacco Belt. And what's really interesting there is the school becomes this powerful source of social infrastructure and connection. Um, Andy Guerrero, who's the principal of one of the elementary schools there, Tom, T- Tomas Rivera, says, uh, I, I lead a campus of joy. Oh. And, um, you know, there's a new high school. It has a, 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 a new auditorium, sorely needed, and the school's band is, as um, one of the counselors told us, is the pride point of the town. And the whole community comes together to hear this marching band and, and to celebrate all of the achievements in the school. Um, elsewhere in South, Te- South Texas, um, whenever there's someone in, in trouble, there's a GoFundMe uh, that goes up. We also studied a community in Brooks County, Texas, where this was just going on all the time. But again, organized around the school, it's bands and it's academic achievement. So um, if you don't have separate and highly unequal, you can actually find an institution that every town has and ensure that that institution creates the connections uh, that help people people thrive. Well, that's a perfect place to end our conversation, although we could go on. We could. <laughs> we could. But my thanks to all three of you uh, for joining us today on The Connection. Dr. Tamla Boyd-Shaw, thank you so much, and, and thank you so much for the work that you're doing in Greenwood, Mississippi. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And she's the head of uh, LaFleur Legacy Academy. Uh, Catherine Eden, thank you for coming in. Nice talking with you again. It was a joy, as always. And same to you, Timothy Nelson. Thank you. You're very welcome. And their book is called The Injustice of Place, Uncovering the Legacy of Poverty in America. And they are uh, sociologists who are experts in this thing called poverty in America. Al Banks, the engineer for today's edition of The Connection. The senior producer of the show is Debbie Builder. Paige Murray-Bessler produces The Connection. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs>